Hello everyone, welcome to episode 13 of Material Analysis, the podcast. I'm your host for today, Pinky, and we have with us comrades Pramod, Chandu and Bela. Today's episode is called Book So Lit. As you can tell, we've um, moved away a little bit from the, the grimness of the last few episodes and a lot of that is to do with taking control away from uh, comrade Chandu, who nonetheless has been roped in because we've promised him that, you know, uh, adhering to good uncle principles, we are going to be talking about things like books and education, which is which is good for everybody, right? <laughs> um, <laughs> but um, as, we, as you might know, uh, books have been in the Indian news lately and they've had a bit of a scandalous touch attached to them. Uh, apparently, canonical books like War and Peace have a bit of an edge to them now. This reminds me of, you know, my mother telling me that when she was in class nine, which was several decades ago, she had this like crazy like reading spurt, which she hadn't ever before or after in her life, where she read books like <laughs> Lady Chatterjee's Lover uh, and all these like banned books, which are actually very dense literary works, but they had this like forbidden thing about them at that point because of censorship. And I feel like similar things are happening, like books yeah, like War and Peace. To be, to be very fair. To be very fair, uh, the the war and peace which created the ruckus was not the same war and peace as Tolstoy. But but right. then to be fair to the journalists, it is very evident that the judge, when he was commenting first, he thought it was the Leo Tolstoy war and peace. It's very obvious, like his mm-hmm. later recantations and protestations, notwithstanding, I don't believe them. But uh, okay. it was a, overall a very hilarious episode. And also, if at all that book was not the, uh, like, Leo uh, uh, Tolstoy War and Peace, but was the Jungle Mahal, whatever, Maoist yeah. War and Peace, it still is a book. And, uh, like, there is no, like, legal uh, reason why this should have been even a point. point. Yeah, I mean, what's interesting about that is that in some ways, <laughs> I feel like I have two mixed reactions when something like this happens. On the one hand, I feel... Uh, very irony about the fact that people who just have these books like sitting on their shelves who probably don't even read them or like you know who do read them are suddenly feeling very cool about their like bougie reading choices but like sometimes I feel grateful being like oh my god at least literature isn't completely relevant and people are still scared of them (laughs) which is not something I get to feel a lot of the time these days yes grim times So, so I would say that before we discuss books we love uh, how about we talk a bit about books uh, which we don't and which are still quite popular for various reasons and then mm-hmm. give perhaps our reasons for not liking pop- these certain popular books. And I'm, I don't mean like, you know, low-hanging fruit like Chetan Bhagat because, yeah, we, yeah that discussion is done to the death. But uh, like uh, like more, more sophisticated books which are fairly popular but which... Some of us hate for certain reasons. Yeah, I mean, sure, you seem to be to be brimming over with the hate right now. So why don't you start? You clearly have something in mind. <laughs> a couple of books I hate. Uh, I would like to start with Haruki Murakami. A lot of his work. Uh, uh, oh yes, yeah, yes. So I, I, like, one, two, uh, it's uh, one of the most cynical, manipulative books I have read. Um, it's meant to mind fuck you. It's very mm. obvious that the that's what the author intends. Like that is the USP of that book. Um, mm-hmm. It's a, it's not a good piece of literature. It's definitely not great the way people pretend it is. Uh, it's mm-hmm. filled with some pretty horrible shit. 
and i will not go into spoiler territory of course but the major part is a very fat book and it's a designed for you to keep reading and the way it, that that designing goes is by presenting fucked up shit which mm. then the author very innocently covers but oh it wasn't what you thought it was it was this other fucked up shit it's a book i deeply despise like it's like to me cynicism is something i can tell like if you know if yeah. the author like makes an instrument by which you you go you you sort of are manipulated into continuing with the narrative despite not liking the narrative or despite it not being a good narrative that sort of deal i think that, that exists in quite a few books and you guys please give some other such mm. one other one other connected i mean i think of him in some ways as murakami's american equivalent is um david foster wallace mm. um i think there's been a lot of talk for instance by feminists who say that you know any guy reading david foster wallace is a bit of a alarm bells sense alarm bells ringing for them and that's not really that's not really how i'm approaching this but to me like i've tried reading infinite jest i actually think his essays are sublime like he has some you know pop culture and political commentary that sometimes is really really profound but his novels i mean his short stories i think are they're interesting but i could not survive infinite jest and that's another one of those you know huge tomes that sits on people's bookshelves and everyone says oh it's you know an amazing book it's on all these lists and what not and i'm just like i can't keep track of the characters the the entire plot line is so haphazard and you know it's not meant to be linear or chronological but even then i'm like i don't understand what this is doing and i have no patience for it after a point i went i got through i think one third of it and then i was like no done do you Life feel that cynicism, do you feel that is just that it's tedious or do you feel that there, since we were talking about cynicism do you feel that there is some cynicism um in in the choice of the form there is some cynicism in the choice of the form i think um i don't know i feel like david foster wallace tries to make his characters deeply complex in a way that are supposed like you know they're impenetrable in some ways and i find that if i'm reading a novel and i literally don't care about any of these people there is i'm not invested in continuing you know i'm just kind of like i don't know where this is going i don't care what happens to them and it's all getting incredibly complicated and they're in, you know it's set in some other universe or another timeline and then there's also some sort of astral projection and ghosts and like it's it's just weird stuff anyway the book is weird it's a weird plot it's got a weird logic to it and i just gave up after a point so yeah david foster wallace is not on my list of favorites <laughs> you know my favorite piece of writing by david foster wallace Is it the, I don't know. Is it Roger Federer? <laughs> the essay? Yes. But <laughs> yes. he has an essay on Federer? It is. My favorite work by David Foster Wallace is his essay on, on Federer. Uh, mm-hmm. Federer as a religious experience. Uh, and, you know, it's an absolute must-read essay for every hater or actually every Federer fan out there. So, yeah. So, yeah, mm. I guess that's that. Okay, that's yeah. That's one reductive. To... Uh, yeah. So, you know, one thing when you were talking about uh, cynicism and brutality and I was thinking that there are a lot of books where some deeply, like, upsetting things happen and they keep happening and they're pretty relentless. But I feel like in my head, there's a clear distinction between, like, the devastating and the tragic and then the cynical. Oh, like, yes, definitely, definitely, definitely. Like, yeah. uh, one, one big example of that for me, at least, and I know people would disagree with me on this, but... It's a song of ice and fire. I don't think a song mm-hmm. of ice and fire is cynical at all. It's a deeply brutal work, and a lot of brutality happens in it. But um, it's not cynical in the way, say, a Fight Club is cynical. <laughs> you know. Mm-hmm. So uh, 
like also although i know of this uh, so called interpretation that you are not supposed to take fight club literally and it's a critique of a certain culture which does take it literally uh, that certain culture being like um, male anarcho libertarian like capitalist whatever like so but uh, <laughs> whatever they are <laughs> whatever they are but uh, but uh, you know people people dunk on a song of ice and fire saying that you know it's uh, misogynist it's this that brutal deeply brutal etc which not it's it's brutal yes but it's uh, the author is coming from a place of honesty rather than trying to rope you in the author is clearly so is uh, honestly misogynist as opposed to ironically no, no, he's like this is a misogynist world the yes, world yes. is feudal it's supposed mm. to be misogynist and One i don't think that's agree- interesting Yeah one thing that's interesting about it is that I, f- I feel like what you're saying is in both cases there is this idea that oh the author's position is not misogynist or the author's position is not brutal the author is simply like reflecting it in some way but in, but in one case i think in chuck palnick's case we're saying that there are like too many levels of irony and too many levels yes, of meta critique yes, where no like there is sincerity there Well mm. yeah so it's like when it is reflecting misogyny because the moral center of the text is hard to locate it's hard to tell when it's giving into it or not whereas yes. you are saying that in um in the in a song of ice and fire at least it's doing like the basic honest work of like oh, also like there is a critique right? right there is this critique that it's fantasy it has dragons in it like if it has dragons in it why can't it be a non misogynist world well no it can't it's a feudal world feudalisms operate in certain mores like it doesn't matter if there is ice zombies or dragons or whatever like a non misogynist or a non patriarchal uh, feudal world is uh, is actually going to be fantastical wherein the author is trying to do some kind of realism there and and is op- very openly trying to do it there is no irony there uh, there is yeah i mean like, even in the hbo even in the hbo tv show they basically show that this kind of world is pretty fucked up like that's what happens yeah, in the film yeah the idea right? is that it's a fucked up world like uh, yeah Yeah. I mean in as a comparison and this is not in epic fantasy at all so it's a different genre but I think if I'm not against the idea of representing misogyny or representing patriarchy right I mean I think one of the big debates around Juno Diaz um after that whole me too sort of mm-hmm. outing was was the question of whether some of his novels were actually representing toxic masculinity or a reflection of his own sort of I don't know faith or redemption of toxic masculinity mm-hmm. and I always felt like it was a little harsh to dismiss his writing entirely because I do think he's giving space to sort of of what society does to men who are you know disenfranchised dispossessed who are really trying to find themselves and of, are of course embedded in a very toxic hyper masculine culture i i haven't read his work but like what i read about him was that he faced but he grew up with violence and you know sexual violence oh, yes. yeah 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 yes. totally so no, i mean no, i think no, it's important to actually represent that I, and i think that his, his novels do that well i i think i i think one more thing is that you know people have this thing i mean like this is just a i think feeling that i get from some of these discussions is that people think that you know if you are inflicting a certain kind of violence then you know can't be a vic- victim of the same kind of violence or you don't realize how that but a violence actually operates and i think you know that's kind of you know that's not really fair because you know a lot of people can be victims of that kind of violence and fully understand mm-hmm. that kind of violence but maybe perpetrating that violence themselves oh yeah for sure so, and, and, and also, i think the dis- and also to put it out there at least for me i have like a position like which is deeply unpopular among the left despite being the left wherein i do separate that from the artist in the sense that 
I think I, I would read something written by a fascist <laughs> if it's a good book. You know, and I would, I would hate a <laughs> book opening up tricky okay. territory. Yeah. So I'm, I'm interested. I am interested in this debate. I like that's it. For example, I'll give you two examples. Uh, Agatha Christie is a deeply fucked up character. Like she's oh, a yeah. deeply fucked up person with incredibly uh, racist, imperialist views. And yes. some of her work is excellent. Like some of her work, I mean, like people call course. it pedestrian or whatever. Like. Like, but I mean, it, Indian kids grew up reading. Like, you know, yeah, it was yeah. deeply entertaining and satisfying. I, I, and oh, amazing. anybody who says that it's not entertaining is a liar. Is a woke liar <laughs> who has become woke and now be like, oh, Agatha Christie was racist. So, like, I don't like Arkul Pora. No, you did. You, you, when you were a little brat, you did. And now you are just who like, doesn't like the mustache, right? Like. Uh, Arkul, like this is the weirdest part about Agatha. I know we are still on the hating like bit. I mean, we're, we've that. moved into complex feelings. Yeah, we've moved into okay. complex I, feelings. I, I guess. I'll, I'll be honest. I I, I hated uh, Agatha Christie. I also hated Arthur Conan Doyle. So oh, you I are no, 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 no. Comrade Pramod, you're cancelled. You're cancelled. <laughs> like seriously. I'm sorry. I will defend Arthur Conan Doyle. Yes, both Arkul Pora and Sherlock Holmes. Like that is like you have no. killed half the fandom no. of this. Sherlock Holmes was my first. I... Sherlock Holmes was my first crush. Like, yeah, okay. He, that, he's a. Don't like you know detective fiction. Okay. Okay. Fine. Fair enough. So your Fair problem enough. is with the genre, not with the author. Okay. Okay. Yeah. 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 So, Fair I, I want but, to but actually, some... I want to take this opportunity to to lay out this distin- this distinction of this like on the one hand we've been talking about the artist, the genre, the aesthetic, and I think that um, one is an ethical conundrum of separating the art from the artist. Do we do that? Do we not? I also think there are questions of whether the artist is still alive and whether we want them to profit off their work. Yeah, that, how... I think that's mm. an important part. Mm. Like, but that's if the artist is fascist. Like if the artist is, you know, a fascist. Like I just said that I would read a fascist, right? I would yeah. read a fascist. I just won't pay them. Like yeah. my posi- or, my yeah. position is pirate that pirate their, their, their works and read it. Right, but I think the other yes. and I think more complicated, at least for me, question is like irrespective of the politics of the artist, it's like whatever ideology comes through the art itself, whatever you know clarity with which we can, whatever limited clarity with which we can grasp it. I guess there are these complicated questions of um how much do we draw a line at representation basically and because the artist always has a choice you know it's never absolute literal like undiluted reality like basically what are some of the expectations that we have as an audience in the sense that if there is representation honest representation or sincere representation or brutality do we want to see the text you know grappling with it in a certain way or opening up the conversation in a certain way that it doesn't just feel indulgent or repetitive but I do want to mention a text which I think is (laughs) deeply cynical that has very little brutality or rather it has a lot of deaths in it but none of it felt like brutality to me because of its cynicism and it is Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows I, the last I, Harry I, Potter book made me throw it at the wall it was a piece of trash yes. uh, It uh, I read it all night and by the time the morning my my youthful mania was cured basically I, I was over and done it. with Harry Potter through that book it was a good poison for a lot of people you know I think a lot of people were deeply in love with the idea of Harry Potter, if not the actual, yes. you know. Yes. The, and the, the first three, four books, okay, honestly, okay. in love. One of, the, one of the guests we have had on this podcast, Gautam Bhatia, he's perhaps <laughs> the biggest creator <laughs> on this planet of Harry Potter and G.N. Oh, Kathleen oh, Rowling. If, in fact, if you could lock Bhatia and Rowling in a room 
I would worry for her life. Um, oh my god. That's... So what is like Hunger Games. I would like to I would like to I would like to record that and air that in our podcast but anyway. No, Bhartia has given a thesis. Just the sounds, just the sounds of Rowling being murdered by Bhartia. That's gruesome. Like Bhartia says that all of Harry Potter was essentially counter-revolutionary literature which saved capitalism. Um, I wouldn't disagree uh, with that. That 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 and uh, I think that's going a little too far. See, I think <laughs> Harry Potter really does work. Yeah, I mean, like. <laughs> Harry Potter does work as a bildungs roman, yeah. Yeah, yeah, bildungs roman. Yeah. It, it was, it was. I, I, yeah. Now I liked it until Prisoner of Azkaban, which I think mm. was a, a. I mean, like, which I think was where the series peaked. It I, was yes. when you know J.K. Rowling, J.K. Rowling finally had this idea that you know maybe you know she'd like to make it more of an epic fantasy kind of thing. Mm-hmm. that i think the series that mm-hmm. went downhill yeah Actually, hollywood that's with the Goblet hollywood is the reason exactly and the reason i say cynicism is because i felt like she was writing that last book just as a screenplay it was like soulless and it was just for these like big dramatic spectacular yeah. moments and yes. and also it's like you know i i yeah. completely agree with what you were saying because i, I... Like, no another thing i'd like to point out since since point is that out like do, does anyone remember the way rowling describes serious black dark? like you literally read that that's just like made for a shot it's like it's made to be shot on film right uh, yeah. you know yeah. like falling to the curtain and what not and i just remember and i remember like even as a kid reading that and thinking you know this is a little too dramatic i think the way it's being and you know then the, this entire battle for hogwarts scene in deathly hallows you know when uh, you know the way bellatrix lestrange dies and that's also kind of mm-hmm. weird you know in a very oh yeah yeah. yeah 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 mrs so, weasley saying not my daughter bitch or whatever like come yeah. on that was yeah, like or such like a plot twist moment where like he... so that? my giggling suspicion of harry potter as a work started with the introduction of the weasleys properly in the story no i think was that why are they poor they have bloody magic how are they poor how can you be poor with magic and no matter what explanation rolling gives you know so it's just like an aesthetic like poverty for aesthetic effect kind yeah, of thing yes because no 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 she tries to give an explanation later that you mm. can't like magic into wealth you can't magic gold or food and things like that mm. which is nonsense because apparently you can magic Uh, infinite labor right you can make people fly you can have mechanical stuff happening the problem with the rule set of harry potter is that it does not adequately explain the presence of class in that world there is a certain <laughs> suspension there's a certain suspension of disbelief that we are all invited to in literary world and it's a question of how captivating that world is that so, you are willing to, me, to suspend to it. me that suspension of disbelief does not break till the last volume wherein <laughs> i basically throw it at the wall Yes. Uh, to it was, it was like, our coming of age moment, basically. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but then, are there any fantasy novels that did allow you to suspend? And not just no. Let's history. just say magic, like not just any fantasy novel, but magic-based fantasy. So uh, one very easy way to avoid this trap is to make magic very rare and very difficult instead of like something you do every morning, like Harry Potter. Like, like so in Lord of the Rings, for example, magic exists, but it's like 
this uh, you know this elemental force of nature which very few people can even use or control and it even it it's not that you control magic it ends up controlling you etc like gandalf and all that mm-hmm. so so in high fantasy it avoids high fantasy avoids this trap completely by presenting a feudal world where magic is rare controlled by these but the very rare wizardly like no no see so that's where i think the charm of harry potter really is that yeah. even though that these are basically super powered wizards walking around in england and uh, scotland essentially they're very normal people within their world so yeah. i think it works in that sense like how many kids of our age i mean like at least when i was a kid like you know we like everyone was like everyone in class was hoping that you know when we turn 11 we'd all get letters oh, yeah. and everything no i no i didn't well, we are not okay. of all okay. at the same age okay. okay. i want to hear chonda's okay. cynical yeah. i want to hear chonda's cynical take on this like i think we have discussed too much harry potter first of all yeah, yeah exactly like, like, like before we move on to books we love uh like we have talked about complex books you know like a song of ice and fire we have talked about books which we liked and then we didn't like like harry potter we have talked about cynical books but there is one book we should mention which i think all of us at least me i think you guys as well we like unironically hate there is no complexity there and it's we don't hate it because it's cynical or whatever it's not which trash, one which one written by trash person i am of course talking about the classic the the epic fantasy series which would which would make lord of the rings uh, look realistic we are talking about atlas shrugged by ironbrand oh, oh. I'm sorry. I know it's cliche to hate on Iron Man, but I just can't. But like one minute hate for Iron Man is like mandated. It's like God. Yes, I agree. I'll I'll say I'll say this. See, for instance, you know, nowadays you have these list list going up on the internet, books that are red flags, etc. And I think a lot of them are unfair. Like you know, if you put Hemingway up there, you put Salinger up there. I think that's unfair. Uh, yeah. Some people might relate to them, and I mean, like, they are good books. I mean, like, Hemingway is a fantastic writer. But uh, Ayn Rand who, is not one of them. Sorry, yeah, not sorry. Anyone who lists Ayn Rand in the list of favorite writers or calls themselves an objectivist deserves <laughs> deserves to be shunned by society. Deserves to live the rest of their lives in isolation in the libertarian fantasy world that they've created for themselves. Oh God! So I okay. I, I I generally think Pramod is juvenile, but this is one thing where I completely <laughs> ironically uncritically support and uh, uh like I I what is the word? I second the claim. I I think that <laughs> I book think... is a very useful book. as uh, as a toilet paper essentially it's a fat <laughs> paper you can uh, use it uh, to clean your bum it's with expe- uh, it's too expensive uh, for toilet paper that will overpriced toilet paper for no it's like for leftists it's toilet paper and for fascists it's the toilet paper they use after jerking off basically listen <laughs> Uh, listen, Ayn Rand can be the thing that unites all leftists. Let's be honest. Yeah, <laughs> this should no, okay, be okay. not be how we organize. Liberals, like okay. feminists, all feminists, of us. like everybody who otherwise keeps hating each other. Okay, like, but in this moment of unity, I need to find out: Did any of you actually have a dark past of like having an Ayn Rand face? Never, never. I never. did. I okay, I did. did for a while. Okay, <gasps> Pinky. I did. Oh my god. Ask, I don't know, like. 
nine or something because I don't know like one of some person I admired a lot was like oh my god this is so cool blah 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 and look she's a bad writer but there are like certain things that she did that were like like she knew how to like push certain buttons at that point of time so I was like I think at what was the the founder was this, was this person you was, was, was this person you respected someone you you were seriously having a oh, crush on because that's the ex- only excuse that I can accept this was a girl in school you could say it was like a friend crush like these were just like people I thought were very much cooler than me around I remember the exact <laughs> moment that I kind of got off as a I it did not happen to me during Fountainhead during Fountainhead I, at that point of time I was still like I am disturbed by this but maybe this is a good thing and then in Atlas Shrugged first of all Atlas Shrugged is just too damn long and like self-righteous there's that and I just got bored did but you, I remember did you get speech did you get I didn't did I actually stopped no I was getting tired even before that but I flipped through a little bit and there was this like doctor character in there and he's like this genius who's like coming up with this and I remember reading this and there was like so this other character greets him and uh, who, uh, and that character was like I'm so happy that you are not doing this to save humanity but you are just doing this for the pursuit of intellect and I remember at that point I'm just putting the book down and being like done I am done it's yes. like just so immoral and self-righteous but what was fucked up is that I bonded with a lot of uh, in my Ayn Rand phase I bonded with some adults over it and then when I got over it I was like wait you all are like 40 what's your excuse uh, yes can we talk uh, about books that actually feel like <laughs> they did shake our world you know because forget books that a judge might actually think are incendiary you know those things are sometimes so arbitrary and hard to say but you know they they they, they <laughs> books or they could be you know not like explicitly revolutionary in that sense but just they made you feel like your just world exploded after you read them yeah I have mm. lots of those I, I I mean you know people ask me people have asked me that question that what are the books which are like your formative books and all and surprisingly that's a question I have answers to like often you don't have answers to questions like this you know like yeah, what I'm is your sure. best this or best that or what re- but with books one book which uh, I never tire of recommending to people and would recommend our audience to read, rather not a book but an entire series actually, uh, is something called the Culture Series. It's uh, by the Scottish author Ian M. Banks who unfortunately died young, uh, uh, like he, he died of cancer a couple of years back and uh, perhaps one of the most underrated and underappreciated science fiction writers of all times. Now, I'll like if you want to like have one representative book which you read from that series to understand what I'm talking about, it's it's a it's a book called Consider Flaybus. Mm. So the the title of the, I'm not going to spoil the book for you, but the title Consider Flaybus comes from this epic poem which is talking about a mariner called Flaybus, uh, like and you are basically saying that. Uh, Flebas was once young and brave too, but uh, Flebas is now old and he's, he has been on a ship and he has been navigating a ship. So consider Flebas who once was like you, etc. Et mm. Oh, uh, this is in uh, in uh, the Wasteland. In DSL is the yeah. Wasteland. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. So these are science fiction books, right? But they come from a very, how would I say, deeply optimistic and humanist uh, vision of science fiction which I've never mm-hmm. seen anywhere else like science fiction at worst has been fascist there's a lot of fascist science fiction out there which has visions of the future where you have a few elite ruling over like you know and there is a lot of like capitalist science fiction wherein you have you know visions of like 
people colonizing planets and inter interplanetary markets and like extreme in inequity and all and then you have of course feudal science fiction you know the, the more banal popular versions being of course your star wars things like that i think it's also important to discuss that many of these works of science fiction are extremely dystopian or yeah, true, uh, they true, but i'm not talking about them like i'm yeah, I in the sense that they subvert like, they're basically like, subverting subverting the idea of a future that is yes but know, i don't like dystopia and i can go into why i don't like <laughs> that idea of subversion of a utopic future or no, that's not yes. that has been done yes. to death everybody does that like everybody thinks they are being this edgy genius by telling people how things are fucked up but i didn't want that at some point in my life yeah. i wanted a genuine honest attempt at utopia i wanted somebody to write a book which was about how a good future could be and i never mm-hmm. found that book till i found this series mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. it completely blew my mind like you like this person sincerely tried to write a utopia and i would mm-hmm. say that they were the only person i have read who succeeded like mm-hmm. they they have a very you know technophilic utopia like a like what promote basically <laughs> uh, you know he at me and all uh, but this person was like no i am this is my line and i will stick to it that you can actually have utopia and you can actually have well for a want of a better word socialism like mm. it, it, the mm-hmm. part socialism like socialism mm. as it should be like it's a libertarian socialism basically it's a it's a world where the means of production are <laughs> on collectively it's it's as simple as that it's an it's a beautiful world he crafts and and mm-hmm. one major problem with you know somebody trying that like this is a question i've been asked when i've described like you know like i won't spoil the plots for you of course but somebody is like that look how can there be a good work where there is you know no struggle like dystopia is dystopia are so popular because of the struggle like you no matter if you like a dystopia or hate a dystopia the the thing which carries the dystopia is the struggle of the protagonist i mean there's a certain it. movement right the narrative finds movement from that the question then then that got asked to me that how could you how could you enjoy a book which you are basically describing that it had a perfect world in it it had a good world in it how how is yeah. a good world anything but boring you know mm-hmm. uh, uh, so so to that of course the short answer is go read it yourself But yes, the, the always, law, always a good answer. The law answer is, which is the more interesting, more like the thing which actually is, makes these books very satisfying, is that mm-hmm. despite heaven having been constructed, heaven mm-hmm. is not perfect, and in its interaction with the non-heaven, in its interaction with the world which is not heaven, heaven faces deep crisis. And how do you not just like? so this is a it's a standard uh, like it takes the standard uh, struggle of you know dystopia and black places on its head that no you have created a good world yeah. but a good world is still made by inf- imperfect beings and a good world yeah. is still it's not a magical world it's a world which is essentially managed by humans and by sentient beings and it's it interacts with other worlds which are perhaps not that good and perhaps the, i actually love the i love the idea of interaction because it's it's one of those things that i also as someone who like works on kind of non human life and animals and things like that like a lot of 
what uh, you know people who try to sort of redeem you know the the non-human without being like overly simplistic about it is uh, that to think of it in terms of there's an impulse in living beings towards a certain kind of variety towards a certain kind of dynamism and encounters and i like this idea that just because you've created this perfect social world it isn't static like it it's yeah. it's and still also, this also, also, to change some, that like some of these books are very sad like because yeah. heaven is sad like once you have created heaven mm-hmm. um uh, you know then there are then it's so easy to break it and it's so easy to try to stop to break it by breaking your own rules because uh, you understand the worth of heaven so i think yeah, anybody yeah. anybody who considers themselves a leftist of any sort anybody who uh, like who has a vision of a future which is better than our current one anybody who thinks that there is a chance that we will survive the climate catastrophe or that we will you know build something which will last uh, and i don't know whether pramod is one of them because he is very pessimistic about all of that but i certainly am i am a very opti- like for all my bitterness and all my uncleness on the podcast and all my critique of various things and not taking things in fun i from i am a genuinely optimistic person i think you that you and bernie sanders yeah perhaps <laughs> i like him uh, i think that we will we will we will survive and eventually we will prosper um i genuinely feel that uh, uh, you guys should read it it's uh, it's like if there is anything i have suggested sincerely it is this so you've made a very compelling case i would say okay who mm-hmm. wants to go next bill would you like to okay uh, okay so actually i to be fair uh books that have influenced my world view okay uh Father's Karamazov. Uh, Why not Dostoevsky? Yeah, and the idiot. Then uh, I I never really got into Camus. Oh, I did like Franz Kafka's depiction of the bureaucracy in both the castle and uh, what was it? The trial, especially the trial. Yes. I sort of mirrored some of my own experiences with the bureaucracy much later on. So yeah, I related to that a lot. um apart from that what else what else Pramod, oh. pick pick a text that you think you can talk really passionately about just uh, and... <laughs> <laughs> it's been so long since i've read a book that wasn't what about a, okay what about a manga uh, oh, okay 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 so there's this okay this one manga is more of an anime and i know i'm deviating from the point this was supposed to be about books but this is this anime that everyone should really watch it's not a very well produced anime i'll say that it's called shinsekai yori uh now essentially and i don't want to give anyone spoilers but it is about an extremely oppressive society okay mm-hmm. and uh, you know uh so this society okay fine i'll give spoilers anyway what anyway if you don't want spoilers just cut it cut ahead please anyway this is interesting because uh, this uh, anime is essentially about um a society where there are humans and there are these uh, sentient mole rat kind of creatures right mm. and the humans basically have psychic powers and uh, the, the mole rats are basically sort of a slave society that lives under them now this story is told from the perspective of the human characters not the mole rat characters and what happens is uh, you know initially you know this in this entire societal perversion isn't shown 
it's basically shown from the perspective of the humans so the humans are basically you know you, you see you you, you know it, it's shown in a way that these humans are discussed these the protagonists are shown growing up etc so you kind of tend to relate to them they have all these problems they become friends with one another blah 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 you know you relate to the human characters as they grow up in the anime etc but you also see them interacting with the society and this society this society of mole rats is extremely servile to these humans you see them befriending some then you suddenly see they basically uh, the mole rats rebel against the human beings and they mm-hmm. actually end up killing some of the protagonists and you know you see and you know you you because you've seen you know it from the perspective of the humans you yeah. tend to sympathize with them right mm. and you think of the mole rats as evil or something or something of yeah. that sort towards the end the leader of the mole rats is captured and tortured to death okay and uh, she he is freed from that torture by this protagonist character um, who basically frees him from the misery by you know euthanizing him but it is revealed that these mole rats were actually humans who were genetically modified into becoming a slave society and the person who led the rebellion basically said that you know he gave in his trial he gives this speech where he basically says that you have subjugated us and this is our right to rebel but wow. here's but but here's the thing you don't really see that until the end here you are sympathizing with the human characters for the most part and which i think is a very good depiction of you know in the sense that how people tend to you know when they're in positions of i mean like when you are part of an oppressive class etc and you don't tend to see that you're the oppressor right mm. until you know and that's basically the twist in the story that you know you you know the characters you've actually been rooting for all along they're the real scumbags and these people are you know if it were some mm. other anime the heroes would be those mole rats but because we showed you those mole rats as not humans but mole yeah. rats that's the reason why you assume that they were you know you dehumanized yeah. exactly the yeah. thing humanize them right so i think that was just pretty powerful in that sense yeah, although yeah. it drags on for a bit long the animation is choppy sometimes etc there are some technical problems with how it's done but the mm-hmm. concept is fantastic um, there are certain commentaries on japanese society as well being an intensely feudal so i mean from <laughs> the perspective of committing war crimes and atrocities and never acknowledging them etc mm-hmm. etc and this series is done in a way that's extremely brutal by the way so when you see these humans being killed by these mole rats they're they're basically shown being ripped apart and everything and you think that's horrible right so mm. but they don't show you the other side so that's 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 one of the things i think was pretty i mean like it's not like really one of my life changing favorite but i think it's something that a lot of people might enjoy watching so that's mm. one of my recommendations i'd obviously recommend people read dostoy Dostoevsky, but I don't think a lot of people would have the patience to go through it. <coughs> Dostoevsky's politics is obviously suspect, but you know, I think as a writer of the of certain, you know, I think he is probably the best chronicler of, you know, certain very important moral questions. I guess I don't mm-hmm. think anyone has written evil and ordinary evil in a way as well as Dostoevsky has, and I think you know with the moral. Comp- 
complexity of his works and people tend to read crime and punishment but that's why you know i really think people should give um, brothers karamazov and uh, the idiot a chance so yeah when you were talking about evil um and i think that's something that i have heard people who've talked about dostoevsky just they always seem really kind of shaken by the depths to which he's willing to go it's like he'll take you on this really searing journey but i was also reminded by hearing tony morrison talk in one of her interviews about how she's really interested in goodness too because she said that evil has always had a an intellectual fascination for people you know it's i had like you know with milton like the character of satan and uh generally like we are we we see layers to evil and it's sort of the, the again the struggle there right like you were talking about in dystopia chandu like a lot of people mm-hmm. are fascinated by evil for that reason too but she was talking about like she's fascinated in ways in which to make goodness like appealing so yeah it's it's interesting to realize that this is kind of like so, you know you can boil down maybe a lot of like these differences in literary tastes and genres uh, to like maybe a very basic question of whether you're more interested in exploring evil or more interested in exploring good you know who knows mm-hmm. um and then of course you have the david foster wallaces who deliberately create a kind of impenetrable like where those questions almost seem irrelevant right yeah um, but any do we have like a a, a different flavor perhaps popping up that somebody would like to talk about so i was going to um i think uh, comrade pramod actually brought in um a novel that i am very very much care about and that is um franz kafka's metamorphosis it's probably the most i don't know it's the novel or novella that i hold most dear to my heart it's something that i actually read of project gutenberg back when you know you suddenly <laughs> discovered this this wonderful repertoire of online free <laughs> that were free and that was you know pre libgen and all of that other stuff yeah. so it was very it was very very sort of i'm just going to go through the stuff and i think uh, goethe was the other one that i <laughs> discovered which i did not enjoy but kafka um i think i read this when i was just 16 or 17 so i had no understanding of sort of the literary tradition it came from i was obviously reading the uh, translation uh, and i think it was the uh, edwin muir and willa muir translation and i actually i'm somehow yeah. absurdly fond of them I mean their translation though people often say it's not the best translations I am weirdly attached to the way in which they've they've translated Kafka but this book is you know of course the infamous Gregor Samsa who is a traveling salesman wakes up one morning and discovers he's been turned into a ginormous bug um <laughs> and i think the exact word is vermin so it's it's always a little bit uh, ambiguous what kind of bug he is and in some ways it's irrelevant but a lot of people sometimes like to like to nitpick about the stuff but um i don't know like i it's it's not a very long book it's actually very short but i had it's a novella and for whatever reason i don't know i found myself profoundly profoundly heartbroken by this book like i remember just finishing it and just sitting and crying for the next few hours yeah. and i was just like i don't know what this book just did and it was to me it was the first indication of that that literature could do something i don't know remarkable and i i think the book is actually very political though obviously at 16 or 17 i don't think i really grasped the politics of it but it was it is a very political book but it's also very deeply personal because it talks a lot about i guess and maybe this appeals to rejection. teenagers rejection yeah. yeah i think it appeals to teenagers it, particularly it was, i was going to say it was yeah. it was again like you know even i had read kafka when i was a teenager without yeah. like understanding existentialism etc for what yeah. it's worth kafka himself was not a very conscious existentialist resistant no he wasn't in the he way wasn't. that satra and kamu were 
whether you can translate them is up to interpretation but you know even the translation does give you the basic idea i actually did read it in german no, i mean i tried reading it but i couldn't i needed to have the english translation by the yeah. side so i can see what the german sentences are doing right because german yeah. i mean the german constructions have the verb at the end of each uh, clause so it's yeah. actually very weird like it's you know i think um, i mean i can literally pull it up right now and do the comparison but anyway we can we can let the audience kind of come to it on their own <laughs> I I'm curious because I guess um I mean I one of the things that supposedly he does with language which also he you know it's also reflected in the sort of content of his works is that there's a certain like spareness to it that seems to like <coughs> almost like it kind of effaces itself or like it eats away at itself and mm-hmm. um and you know so moles we already talked about moles today um in the burrow uh it, there are these like more like creatures that burrow yes. right and then yes. there's the wall like the great wall and i think like i've i've read about like kafka like often like being a little closed in in these ways or like there's like a certain like retreat or like withdrawal in a lot of his writing which it's so not just Yeah. Yeah, I was I was going to add to that and just say that there's a certain um I mean he's fascinated with language himself as well. In the penal colony literally is about a machine that inscribes, you know, your punishment onto you and that actually kills yeah. you. So it's literally the yeah. power of language to kill, like to Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. And I think people have said that he's not as explicitly political because he's like a little bit like, you know, that that retreat into some world or into some like something hot no, and vulnerable is there, like, instance, but Yeah. For instance, you know, the castle and the trial always have this sense there is a sense of dread it is you know yeah. some people have tried casting kafka as an existentialist but it's not a dread that is necessarily even existential in the sense no it is it is a very it is this fear of there is this dread that is basically more systemic more yes yes more political which is not stated directly as political but yes. in a sense it is this you know the role that the bureaucracy plays this entire yeah. role i like you know this uh, that's a very very you know i think it's um, it very few i mean that's what that's what people say in, you know when you go like you know even when people are talking about the nrc people use the term kafka as nightmare right? yeah and, yeah and in the sense of this bureaucracy that stifles you but it's also i think not just about the bureaucracy but a very very systemic alienation that people face in you yeah. know the modern But I also think he is not just problematizing bureaucracy and systems, but actually authority. He has, mm-hmm. I mean, the castle is literally about the figure in the castle, right? Yeah. Metamorphosis yeah. is very famously about the father, and you know, Kafka's yeah. very famous sort of issues with his father. And so there's yeah. like there's there's authority, read, but there's also... one more thing I'd actually recommend to the audience is actually reading Kafka's letters to his father. So anyway, Franz Kafka's mm-hmm. my pick for for the book that is literally yeah. an axe for the frozen sea in your heart. <laughs> <laughs> so as your host since I have the privilege of wrapping this up and also ending on on my text of choice uh I'm going to end on something that I mean is kind of in some ways a little bit like the opposite of Kafka because it's a text that I associate <laughs> with like plenitude and warmth uh mm-hmm. and... so something i would like okay good i was getting bored of this discussion i'd like to <laughs> out completely thank so you i could see uh... i could feel the silence it's de- it's very deeply poignant as well it's not just this rejection of what anyway um but uh, the text that i want to talk about <laughs> There is a watching god by Zoraline Hurston and it's a text I actually read uh, for a course and I honestly wasn't 
before I read it, I wasn't as familiar with the sort of African-American uh, canon as I should have been. But that text just changed everything for me in a, in a way. And I it was one of those books which I felt like did everything that I, I kind of like, like in life and in art. Like it made me cry. It made me like it was hilarious too. And basically... Um, it's it starts off with this woman's like return to this uh little town that she was from it's set in Eatonville Florida and basically she sits on the porch next to her old friend and recollects her life and it's just all about the experiences uh that have shaped her and and the reason that I'm very intrigued by this book and and also Zorni Hurston herself was in some ways this very sort of imperious figure like she uh, had these you know, she would make these like declarations about uh, the fact that you know she doesn't think of herself as a victim and like talk about herself like as a black woman with like a lot of um vitality and glamour but then there would all, but then there were also ways in which i mean she genuinely saw what you know what racism and and white supremacy in america did and the way in which it emerged is that she just felt that it was her, her most honest artistic rendition was rendering black people especially black women just as as kind of just replete with humanity basically and just joyous and uh and Janie mm-hmm. the character here she just goes through a lot of relationships honestly and she starts off with this person on the farm that she's just not happy with she kind of and I mean I'm, I honestly don't think this book can be spoiled like again like the, the plot is rich but it's just it's the language that things really and uh, and her kind of growth through this all and um, mm-hmm. she uh, and then she moves on uh, into so she she runs away from the farm with this guy uh, and like they get married and he's this like stately worldly person right who mm. brings her to this town sets it up as like one of these like first major like all black towns uh, in um, in Florida and but then like his ambitions clearly get the better of her and he starts kind of treating Jeannie like shit in this very condescending way and um and when and you know and at one point like she just makes this speech and like everybody around her is complimenting her for being a good orator and he clearly doesn't like it and he like makes power moves and she has to move away from then uh, as well and one of my favorite little details about that moment too like in in that particular phase of her life is like there's this mule that just keeps wandering around and it's like this mule that is like too stubborn and old <laughs> to like do any real work and so um <laughs> so this uh, husband of Jamie actually like frees the mule by saying that this is abusive and like he's a free mule now and like and then Janie's speech was actually where she comes in and follows it up and basically says that you freed the mule like Abraham Lincoln freed the slaves kind of thing and there are these weird parallels going on and like basically the mule becomes this adoptive citizen and at the end of that phase like they actually like there's a funeral for him and and then they all come and they give speeches again and when they go away these vultures come and eat the mule so like there's this weird cycle of life Oh my god. Um, that's and then, okay. <laughs> that's and then finally left basically <laughs> her last romance is very turbulent and it ends up being very tragic. Her husband dies under circumstances that were really traumatic for her. Uh, but also because of those tragic circumstances, it leads to a fa- like a breakdown of the relationship itself because his rationality and his health and all of that is at stake. Mm. Um, mm. And and she is culpable. She becomes complicit in an act of violence, which is also an act of self-defense, basically. Mm. And this guy 
complicated figure because he's like a certain stereotype that comes up in like Hurston's works a lot where he's like this very carefree almost like this man child and he's also like pretty misogynist in some ways but there's also this genuine love and redemptiveness that this relationship holds for you know which is troubling I think for any feminist it's troubling but I kind of want to end on reading out the last paragraph again it's really not a spoiler oriented thing but it's just like one of the most luminous like bits of literature I've ever read in my life so she's with her friend and she's reflected on like everything she's been through all the loves of her life all the losses and at this point like she's you know she's a single woman and an aging woman and uh, and tea cake is the name of her her husband, her last husband, with whom like she really felt like she actually found love. Um, so it goes, the day of the gun and the bloody body and the courthouse came and commenced to sing a sobbing sigh out of every corner in the room, out of each and every chair and thing, commenced to sing, commenced to sob and sigh singing and sobbing. Then TK came prancing around her where she was and the song of the sigh flew out of the window and lit in the top of the pine trees. TK with the sun for a shawl. Of course he wasn't dead. He could never be dead until she herself had finished feeling and thinking. The kiss of his memory made pictures of love and light against the wall. Here was peace. She pulled in her horizon like a great fishnet pulled it from around the waist of the world and draped it over her shoulder. So much of life in its meshes, she called in her soul to come and see. And I just love the idea that she pulled in her horizon like a great fishnet. Like, it's like the horizon of her sh- of her life becomes a mm. shawl that she puts around her in this like act of like womanliness. Mm. And at the end, like when she says she called in her soul to come and see, it's like she's inviting herself to kind of witness like how much she's accumulated over the years and for me it was just like amazingly transformative to just you know again to have this moment with two aging women sitting on the porch just talking about their life and it just like culminating in this climactic moment which is nothing really happens but the climax is in experience and in becoming wiser becoming stronger through everything so it was just like ridiculously moving for me basically mm. wow so- I am with Henry Louis Gates Jr. where he calls it the greatest book ever written in the American tradition. And I'm I'm usually not one for like sweeping declaratives, but on on this count, I, I am. So basically any any final, I don't know, battles to be fought before we I, it strikes me that none of us have spoken much about Indian writers at all. I so know, I think we I should I think we should just end on saying oh. that we hope that there will be another episode with some Indian uh, literature Indian to writers, off. yes. Thank you, everyone, for listening to our episode and for allowing us to get on our hobby horses and just kind of sit back and, and, you know, talk in a relaxed manner for a change. We hope to have similar episodes. But of course, knowing us, you know, the the seriousness is also going to come flooding back. But it's, it's nice to know that we get to do this as well. So thank you so much again. Thank you. Bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye. 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 Bye.